Well, good morning. It's a delight to be here this morning at Westmount Bible Chapel. It's, we've been trying to arrange this for a long time, and so it is, it is a delight to be here. Um, it is big shoes I'm feeling this morning. You know, your pastor was just preaching at our church last week, and we certainly enjoyed the message from the Word. His faithfulness to the Word is clarity, and certainly... Uh, you guys are very blessed here to have a pastor who opens the Word of God every week and exegetes it for you and gives it to you. And so he couldn't be here this morning. I'm not sure if he thought that he had heard me before and he didn't need to be here. <laughs> but the reality is he's sick this morning, and so we, we want to uh, pray for his recovery. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to him. No, not to him. To Psalm number three. Well, it is a hymn. So let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm three. That will be our text this morning. We sang it already, and so we will read it again. I'm reading from the New American Standard, so it may sound different than some of your Bibles. Listen to David as he writes. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against many. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Zelah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have spitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people, Zila. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word. Join with me in prayer this morning before we walk our way through this text this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us in human language so that it could be understood, that you've given us it to us in our language so that we can understand it. And so, Lord, we know that you have given us the Holy Spirit, and he is able to illuminate these truths. And we know this morning that nothing that is done this morning will be of any benefit outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I pray that he would be our teacher this morning, and he would illuminate the truths of this text to us. So again, build your church here this morning, and may we go out more in the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, more in love with him, and singing his praises as we go, I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. In the Christian life, it is easy to, to trust God when things are going well, when everything is going along just like we planned and we have everything going along nicely, we trust God. And we think God is good. God is blessing me. Everything is good. This is the way life should be. But when trials start to come into our life and things start to get difficult, it can shatter our trust in him. And we start to think that maybe because things are getting difficult and we look around us and we and there are things that are happening in our lives that we didn't plan. There's an illness that comes. There's a job that we lose. The government is now taking away our freedoms. And everything that we hold dear is starting to crumble. And we think, maybe God is angry with me. Maybe God is upset with me. Maybe God is, is turned his back on me. And worse... For some of us, we have committed sins in the past and we think, oh, this is just a result of my sin. God is just bringing it back down on me. God has now abandoned me and he has left me. His blessing is gone. And it's so easy when trials come for us to just want to think that somehow it's not right and that God has abandoned us. 
But in this text this morning, David is going to show us how to maintain our trust in God in spite of trials, in the midst of trials, and how we can put our trust in him. Now, it's interesting as he starts this, he says, for the choir director, stringed instruments of David, a psalm of David, which is actually Psalm 4. He says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, you may think that you have problems in your life, and and I assure you do. But David here has some major problems going on. He's got some major trials going on. And we could say that he has not only, he's got family relation problems, he has been betrayed by his son, his life is in danger, he has lost the comforts of of his palace, and things are difficult for him. So if anybody had, a, had a, the idea that maybe God was against him, David might. And in fact, if we look back at what's taking place here, David is running and fleeing because Absalom is after the throne. Now, Absalom was David's third son born to him in Hebron. Second Samuel 3 tells us. We are told that Absalom was handsome from head to feet, head, head to toe, head to feet, head to toe, and that he had a beautiful head of hair. In fact, they used to weigh his hair. I'm not sure why, but he weighed his hair and he had a lot of hair. So here's a man that was known for being very good looking and had a wonderful head of hair. But really what's absent is in scripture, as Matthew Henry points out, is that there's nothing about his character that we're told. There's nothing about his wisdom Nothing about how he is stable. Now, Absalom, we know, got into trouble because when David's son, Ammon, decided that he was interested in Absalom's sister, now they were half-sisters, he eventually, because of his lust for her, raped her. And at that time, King David did nothing. In fact, it says King David was angry, but he did nothing. He didn't do anything to punish Absalom. So Absalom waited for two years, and he waited his time, and he bided his time until he took the princes of Israel with him, and he went and he killed Ammon. And then he fled. Now, Absalom probably thought his father would put up with rape, but he would not put up with murder. And so he fled. He couldn't go to any of the cities, refuge cities in Israel, because you, had to, you couldn't go there for first degree murder, only accidental murder. And so he fled. He fled out of the country and he actually went and stayed with his grandfather. And he's there for several years. And then it became clear it says that David got over the death of his son and he started to desire to see his son Absalom. So Joab recognized that, and he went to King David and he says, why don't you bring him back? Bring him back to Jerusalem. And so David agrees, and he brings back Absalom, which is, and then he never sees Absalom, which is kind of strange. He brings him back into the city, but he actually never sees him. And so Absalom says, well, it'd be, I may as well just be out in the country where I was before. And so he says, I want to see my father. So he sends for Joab, and he says, Joab... I want to go see my father. And Joab won't reply to him. So Absalom, in in a moment of, I don't know, insanity, decides that he's going to burn Joab's field to get his attention. So he burns down his field, and Joab comes over and says, what do you want? He says, I want to see my father. I I want to see his presence. So Joab goes to David, and eventually Absalom is is restored to his father, and he sees him in fellowship. Now, at this point, you're thinking, well, this is pretty good. Absalom wants to see his father. But as we read this morning, as soon as he gets restored to his father, he takes up a chariot and 50 men to go with him, and he starts marching around Israel. This would be the modern day where you have a limousine and some bodyguards. And he's presenting himself as someone as he goes around. And then as he is there... He's going out to the gate of Jerusalem every day, and and at the gate they used to hear grievances and they used to have summary of the law. 
and he would meet all of the Jews as they came in. And as a great politician that he is, every time he heard a story, he said, man, you've got a great case. You've got a great legal case. But it's really too bad that King David isn't here to hear you. It's really too bad that no one from the king's palace is actually interested in you. So he's playing politics, and he's intercepting them. And as it would seem, there's not one person here that he didn't say they had a good case. Now, I don't know about you, but when someone tells you have a good case, you tend to believe them, and you are affectionate towards them. And so he's going out, and then when people would come and they would bow before him, he would pick them up and he would hug them. He says, oh, no, I'm one of you. Don't, don't put me up there. I'm just interested in your good. And with that, he began to steal the hearts of the people. Now, you would wonder, David didn't know anything about this, so you don't know what David is doing, but it seems like he was busy with other things in the kingdom, and he's not aware of what's going on. And so Absalom, finally, as he's plotting, he decides that he's going to set himself up as king. And so he takes those 200 men with him, and they innocently go to Hebron to do his vow, as we read about. And he sets himself up as king. Now you might think, well, why doesn't that trigger something in everybody's mind? Because wouldn't they think that David is king? Well, there was a thing where the kings used to be co-regents. In other words, the king that was already on the throne as he aged would often be reign with his son. And he would reign so that was a, a cohesive movement of power upon his death. And so many of the people would have assumed that this was with David's blessing, but it wasn't. And so when David hears about it, and he hears that actually Absalom has now been made king and is coming after him, David flees. He flees the palace, he flees with a few, with a few followers, and he flees the palace. And so David is in this predicament because he didn't take care of business. He wasn't a good father, he didn't take care of the sin that was there. And ultimately, we know that this is a result of Bathsheba. And so David is, is in the midst of this trial, and he's in the midst of this running, and his life is in danger. And as he's in danger, and as he is running, he writes this psalm. And this psalm is written while he is running. In fact, I think if we looked at 2 Samuel 16 you'll see verse 14. It says that David... Verse 13. So David and his men went all the way, and Shimei went along the hillside parallel with him and cast stones on him. Nope, that's the wrong verse. Anyway, David goes to the, to the, to the river, and he refreshes himself. And it is probably at that point where David is in the midst of fleeing that he writes this psalm. And as David writes this psalm, not only does he show us his transition through trials, but he gives us four keys for us in order to not lose our trust in God during trials. Four keys that we, so that we will not lose our trust in God during trials. We will see, first of all, that we need to recognize the enemy's strategy of causing us to doubt. Secondly, we will recall God's character. Third, we will rest in God's peace and then rejoice in God's victory. So the first key for us to stand in the midst of trials is to recognize the enemy's strategies to doubt. In other words, the enemy wants to cause us to doubt God's goodness and his ability to help us. And that's what David faces here as we begin verse 1. O Lord, my adversaries have increased. Many are rising against me. And so he calls out, O Yahweh, again the covenant name of God. And for Israel, they understood that Yahweh wasn't just an identification of, of his name, but it was a part of his character. He was the covenant-keeping God, the God who moved and saved his people 
And David says, O Yahweh, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising against me. And again, he says, here I am. I am, I am out of my palace. I am running for my life. And Absalom's people are growing in strength. Second Samuel fifteen twelve says, And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. And David realizes that he's outnumbered. He, he recognizes that there are many rising against him. The, the repetition of many here in, indicates the, the increasing rising number of adversaries. They are rebelling against David. And so he is in that predicament where he is surrounded by hostile enemies who are coming to kill him. Now, you might think that's the biggest problem that David has. These people chasing him, trying to kill him. But that's not David's biggest problem. The biggest problem is what they are saying to him. They are saying this. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. This is the biggest problem. They are saying to David, there's no deliverance for you in God. God is not for you anymore. God is not on your side. He's abandoned you. Now listen, they're not just saying God won't help you, and they're not just saying that God can't help you, but they were saying, actually, God is against you. God is actually on our side. And you can hear them, you can actually hear what they are saying to David in 2 Samuel chapter 16. David is is fleeing. He's on the Mount of Olives as he is leaving. And there came a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimea, the, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were right at, at his right side and at his left. Now, you have to think that this guy had a little bit of a death wish, and he must have been extremely bitter. Because even though David only had, didn't have a large gathering, he did have some of the mighty men of Israel with him. And you're out throwing stones at him. Now, you've got to think that, humanly speaking, that's not going to turn out well for you. But he is so bitter against David, he is throwing rocks at those men around him. Thus Shimea said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, and you worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and God has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. In other words, David, you're getting what you deserve. God is against you. God is taking the kingdom away from you because you are a man of bloodshed. God is against you. He can't save you from us. God is on our side. And here is the enemy's strategy. Get you to doubt God. Get you to doubt that you, that he is on your side. Trials will come and there will be a tendency for you to say, God is angry with me. God is against me. God, God won't save me. I deserve it. And so there was this tendency for David, would he believe this? Does he abandon his trust in God at this point? He is the one who made him king. He is the one who made a covenant with him. He is the one who appointed him a king of Israel. But does David believe that God is true to his covenant? Is God is true to his word? Now again, you might say, well, he's getting what he deserves because 2 Samuel chapter 12 tells us 
that after Bathsheba, Nathan said to him, why have you despised the world, the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have stuck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and you have killed him with the swords of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall not depart from your house because you have despised me and you have taken the life of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And so you might say, well, this is just what God said was going to happen. God said that there would be trouble. God said that he would bring judgment on David. But we have to realize that though there are consequences to our sins in this life, that ultimately God's promises to us are not taken away because of sin. In other words, David had been appointed by God by an eternal covenant to be king of Israel. It would never, ever be taken away because of what he had done. Remember, this is in the past. David has already confessed and dealt with this. And God's blessing is not taken away from David. David, God does not abandon his people because of past sin. And so we can trust God's promises to us regardless of what has taken place in the past because our salvation and our fellowship with him is not dependent on our past sin but on present obedience. And so as they went against David, they weren't just going, they were going against God's anointed. And God would not abandon David. So it is for us. So it is for us. God does not abandon his children. He is always faithful. But David doesn't stay there. He doesn't, as he's looking at his problems, David doesn't stay there. He begins to lift his eyes up and he begins to look to the Lord and he begins to put his trust in God. And David starts to recognize or to recall God's character. And this is where we must go when we are faced with problems and we have these doubts and, and, and they, these doubts are coming to us. The only way that we're going to work through these doubts is to recall the character of God. Does he abandon his own? Who is God? And when we know who God is, we no longer fear. Look at verses three and four. And in these, four, in these two verses, we see four characteristics or four things about God's character that help us understand who he is. First, he says, the Lord, he says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Zila. So the first thing that we see here is that God is his shield. He, he says, God is my shield about me. Now, you'll notice this. He starts with, O Lord. In other words, it, doesn't, it always starts with that. It always starts not with I. It's not in our resources, not our abilities or intelligence, not in our control, but in turning our eyes to the Lord who can help and putting our faith there. And so he says, Yahweh is my shield about me. Over a dozen times in the Psalms, the Lord is referred to as a shield even in Proverbs 30, verse 5, it says, He, that is the Lord, is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Notice what David says in Psalm 3, though. He doesn't say, He is my shield. He says, You are my shield about me. Not in front of me, not behind me, not next to me, but around me. This is not a shield that David has to pick up. He's not a shield that he has to carry around. This is a shield that, the, that is there all the time. 
David is not vulnerable to the unmitigated attacks of his enemies. Thus, David knew that only arrows and sword thrusts that, were, that could penetrate this shield are the one the Lord allows for his good. Get that? He would agree with the psalmist in Psalm 119.71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. As our shield, the Lord doesn't keep us from trouble, but he does keep us in trouble. The Lord doesn't keep trouble from us, but he does keep us in trouble. That is to say, he allows trouble into our lives, but only as far as it is good for us. We sometimes think that a lack of, of trials means God's favor. But the reality is, James tells us that if we don't have trials in our lives, it, we will not mature in Jesus Christ. In the same way that David did not claim to be shielded by his family, his loyal soldiers, or even the day's distance from Absalom, neither should we trust in temporary circumstances. It was David who penned Psalm 20 and said, Some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord, our God. He alone is our shield, not our bank accounts, not our lawyers, not the government, not family, not our intelligence, not our abilities, not our skills. The Lord alone is our protection. And so we must rest in that. The second characteristic that David recalls is simply this, that the Lord is not just my shield, but he is my glory. And as David looks at God, he again says, God is my glory. Glory has the idea of weight or significance or importance. David's importance and significance was not in his kingship, not in his crown, not in restoration. God was David's significance. When David fled from Jerusalem, he left everything behind. He didn't bring his royal robes. He didn't bring his extra special cutlery and his fine jewelry. There wasn't a song and dance as he left the J- Jerusalem. He was not riding in a chariot. He didn't go out on a, on a pillowed bed that was carried by his people. Here's how Second Samuel describes it. And David went up the ascent of Mount of Olives and wept as he went. And his head was covered and he walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went weeping as they went. And so as David went, all of the things that that would typically define a king and his glory had vanished. But for David, it didn't matter. For David, it didn't matter that he had lost all of these things. For David, his glory was still intact because he got his glory from God. He got his significance. He got his identity from the Lord, and the Lord was still with him. In this day and age where everybody is trying to put, give you an identity by a group, we as believers have our identity where? In the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are. Wouldn't you agree that we have a tendency to blow trials out of the water and make them much bigger than they are because we have a tendency to value the wrong things. And we have a tendency to value our possessions. We have a tendency to value our jobs, our reputations, our comfort, rather than being in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we value that more than the Lord being with us. We need to remember that God is our glory and the one who gives us our identity and value. And when that happens, we can lose all earthly things and still be rich.
So as David recalls God's character, he comes to a third characteristic. He is David's restorer. He says, the one who lifts my head. Now this is more than just lifting someone's head as if he's trying to straighten out his posture. The idea here is the idea of restoration. It means to restore to dignity and position and reflects confidence in the Lord. And David says, listen, I know that God made a covenant with me to be king. He chose me to be king of Israel. And I am confident, even as Absalom is chasing me across the countryside, that God will restore me to my rightful position. He will restore me back to being king. He was confident because God had chosen him to be Israel king. He had not chosen Absalom, he had chosen David. And so David says, God will restore me. In other words, God will place me back into the position that I rightfully have. And for us, we may not be kings, but God says, guess what? I will restore all things to, to, that, to you that are yours. Everything that I have promised to you will be restored to you and you will lose nothing. It may not be in this life, but eventually I will store you to the rightful position as sons and gods of our Lord Jesus Christ. So David says, if you're going to get through trials, you need to recall God's character You need to recognize that he is your shield, that he is your glory, he gives you your identity, that he's the one who will restore you and restore all things. And then he wants, he gives us one more characteristic. He says, he is the God who answers prayer. I was crying to the Lord with my voice. Now, this is not a quiet prayer. This is not one of those quiet prayers that you do on your knees in the basement. This is a loud cry. This is a public cry. He says, I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. The holy mountain here is, is Mount Zion, which is in Jerusalem. Outside of Jerusalem, it's really Mount, Mount of, the Mount of Olives. And this was a place that was a symbol of God's presence. This is where the Ark of the Covenant, David had taken the Ark of the Covenant there. And David says, I cried and God answered me from there. And so David is fleeing from the palace and, he's, and, he, and he flees. And while he is fleeing, he flees to the Mount of Olives. And when he's there, he finds out that Ahithophel, his advisor, is among those who have joined Absalom. And while he's on that mountain, he cries and he prays, O Lord, I pray that the counsel of Ahithophel is foolishness. Well, God answered David's prayer, but he answered it in a way that you wouldn't expect. Because as we look, Ahithophel actually gave very good advice to Absalom. He said to Absalom, what should we do now? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, we need to go after David. I think he's stopped. He's stopped. He's resting. He hasn't crossed the river. We can go get him. And Absalom, in God's sovereignty, doesn't take his advice. He thinks David's too smart for that. David wouldn't do that. And so they don't go after David, and David is spared. And so God, in his own way, takes David's prayer and answers it in his way, and David is spared. And there David's prayer from Mount Zion is answered as God hears him. God is near. God is present to hear David's prayer. And so David puts his trust in God. Instead of looking at his problems and his adversaries, he looks to God to see and answer his prayer. And so David looks at God's character and he sees what 
what God has done for him and who he is to him. And David puts his trust in God because of who he is. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God who moves and rescues his people and saves them. And the only way that we will ultimately get through trials is to take our eyes off of the problem and to put them onto God. And when we put them onto God and we believe in who he is, then our troubles become small. Well, we've, we've seen this morning that we are, first of all, to recognize the enemy's strategies to cause us to doubt. Secondly, if we're key to getting through trials, is to recall God's character. And the third key here is to rest in God's peace. Because David has looked to God, because God, he has looked at God's character and he looked at who he is, he can now rest in his peace. He says, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. Now remember, David is on the run. David has people who are seeking to kill him. He's completely outnumbered. So this does not seem like the time to lay down and sleep. This does not seem like the right time to just lay down and have a nap. This is not natural. This is not normal. It doesn't even seem safe. Yet David said, I lay down and slept. Now it doesn't say here, I lay down to sleep. He doesn't say, I, I lay down and I was, I was hoping to sleep. He says, I lay down and sleep. And you might say at this point, David, you forgot a, you, you, you forgot a step there. You're supposed to toss and churn and worry for a while. And you're supposed to just work this problem through and keep working it through until you're so exhausted you finally fall asleep. But not David. He had looked at the character of God. He looked at the answers to prayer. And guess what? He said, I lay down and slept. I have no worries in the world. Now, there are a few people who have imitated this kind of faith. If we remember Peter, Peter is in prison and he's tied between two guards. And the angel comes along and taps him on the shoulder and walks him out of jail. And he walks over and he goes to the church's door or where the church is meeting and he knocks on the door, right? And Peter, he's so asleep and he's so sure that he's sleeping that he probably doesn't even realize that he's being rescued until they slam the door in his face and don't let him in. He's so resting in God that he is just asleep. And he just assumes that this is not happening. Again, the peace of God guards your heart. Philippians tells us, Be anxious for nothing, but in all things with prayer and supplication make your requests known to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. And really, this is the Old Testament version of Philippians 4.6. David, he just trusted God. He laid it all on God, looked at God, and said, you can deal with it. You can do as you please. Therefore, I guess what? I'll just sleep. Now, just in case you think he's being a little sloppy here, he says, I awoke. Guess what? I just didn't fall asleep carelessly and get killed in the night. I also woke up. The Lord will take care of me. He wasn't kind of a fatalistic thinking, but David had his trust in the character and savingness of God. And David says, I awoke for a reason. I woke, he says, because the Lord sustains me. He's the one who holds me up. He's the one who protects me. And he says, I went to sleep and I woke. My enemies are still searching for it to kill me. And guess what? I just slept and I'm alive today. Why? Not because I'm clever, not because I'm a good soldier, not because I know strategy. No, because the Lord sustains me. And that is the very same thing for us. In every situation, we must trust him. There are times where we think get into situations and we think we can paddle a boat and we can make things go. 
But we have to recognize that no matter how much we plan and how much we strategize and how much we worry, ultimately, he's the one who sustains and controls all things. That's why David says in the next verse, I will not be afraid of 10,000 people who have set themselves around about me. It doesn't matter. God is stronger than all. God sustains me. He cannot. They cannot do anything to me without his permission. And you know what? The same promise is open to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who sustains us. He's the one that keeps us. He's the one that strengthens us. Nothing can happen to us outside of his sovereign will. And whatever problems we face, we know that God will sustain us. And so here is David with the peace of God guarding his heart. I think if we're honest, there are many times where we have laid in bed and we have struggled with problems. We've tossed and turned and we've tried to figure out how to fix it. We need a little more David where we recognize that it is God who sustains us. God will work out his will and his way. And we simply must trust him. We need to stop worrying. We need to stop being anxious. We need to put it in his hands, trust his character, and do what David did. Let the peace of God guard your heart. I think it's easy sometimes for us to look at God and we look at his character and we look at who he is, but it doesn't take hold. We can list off the things that God is. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. We can list all the promises But in reality, we don't believe them. And so we need to ask God to help us to believe the promises and to trust in his character. And then we need to pray. We need to leave it on his shoulders. And we need to rest in his peace. It's not enough to know God's character. It's do you really trust in his character? So this morning, so far, we've seen that we are called to recognize the, uh, the enemy's strategy to cause us to doubt. We are called to recall the character of God. We are called to rest in his peace. And then we are called, in verses 7 and 8, to rejoice in victory. David says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Arise is a call to immediate and swift interventions by God. And so he says, Arise, O God, save me, O my God. And David knows that his salvation and the only place to go is to God. And so he cries out in prayer. It is a prayer of faith. And David is expecting that God will deliver him. He says, for you have smitten my enemies on the cheek. Now David is speaking here, and it sounds like he's speaking in the future tense, but the idea here is David thinks that the victory is so secure that it's already happened. And he says, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. In other words, that was the idea in in the Eastern culture was when you slap someone on the face, that was an insult. You have insulted my enemies. You have slapped them on the cheek. You have grossly insulted them. The next phrase, you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Now, this is an incredibly violent image. Interpreters have differed exactly on what this reference is to. It's either a reference to a vicious animal being made harmless by the removal of its teeth or an ancient Near Eastern culture context, a punishment for verbal crimes. Like having your teeth knocked out or or shattered. So you can imagine how painful that is. And David says, Lord, I want you to do this. I want you to arise, for you have smitten my enemies on the cheek and you have shattered the wicked. Now this seems kind of an old, like an old covenant prayer, doesn't it? That's pretty violent. 
and maybe it doesn't seem very seeker-sensitive, and maybe we're not strong enough to pray it. But we can learn from David here. What we learn is allegiance to Yahweh is everything. This isn't for David. The throne belongs to who? To Yahweh. He is, he is the ultimate king. God's just, justice is not something we are allowed to cover up. You think this is Old Testament? You should read the martyrs in Revelation, right? How long, O oh Lord? Till you avenge our blood. It is in the nature of God to punish evildoers. We cannot get that wrong. Salvation and deliverance is a messy business, and we must learn to discern the difference between harsh and unloving and divine judgment, because this is divine judgment. David again states this as it is done. And he is praying this, remember, while Absalom is still in the palace. David's prayer is victorious, triumphant, confident. It is a prayer of faith. This rebellion gets resolved not much in, in not much longer time in the forests of Ephraim, where 20,000 rebels are killed, including Absalom among them, in chapter 19. The trouble David faced cost him dearly because he loved his son. But with his eyes fixed on God and on God's deliverance, especially, he ends with a song, with a testimony and a blessing. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people, Zila. This is a declaration of deliverance. This is the blessing that he utters that comes from the heart of a shepherd. David will be delivered, but he wants God's people to see that deliverance and to be blessed, to have joy, to be filled with rejoicing, to be instructed in the nature of God's salvation. He wants them to know, like David does, the salvation belongs to God. And that is true today as it was then. Salvation belongs to God David knew this. Salvation belongs to God. It's not found in the church. Salvation is not found in baptism. It's not found in works. Through our tears. It's not found in religion. It's not found in good works. It's not found in ritual. It's not found in who we what family we're born into. Salvation is found in the Lord. So when you trust him in trouble, you await his deliverance. And perhaps when we are in trials, perhaps when we are in trouble, we will remember Psalm 3. And though we are not a king yet, there is a day coming. And in the meantime... You take this truth with you. Take the truth and speak it to trouble. Salvation is in the Lord. We're reminded that there was another son of David. But unlike this son of David, he was perfectly righteous. A son who, like this David, was betrayed. A son just like this David, who on the night that he was killed, he walked the same path up the Mount of Olives, just like David did. A son who wept, not for himself, but for others. He was troubled on that dark night and abandoned by friends like David was. A prelude to a greater abandonment on the cross when the father would turn his face away. This son had his enemies surround him, many foes. They too testified and rose up against him. And with similar words, they said, God 
will not deliver him. God will not deliver him. Does that sound familiar? Matthew chapter 27. Let God rescue him if if he wants to. For he has said, I am the son of God. Jesus heard those same words as he hung dying on the cross. And Jesus' response was submission as he died on the cross. He too died in submission to the Father, in perfect obedience and trust. Jesus delivered his people from death. He is God. He is Lord. And he is King. And every trial that we go through teaches us to trust in this Jesus. Every trial that we go through, every difficulty that we have ultimately pushes us to our Lord Jesus Christ. And we were reminded of Romans 8.28. Every believer loves this promise. All things work together for good for them that love God, for those who are called, what? According to his purpose. And it's interesting that David believed that promise before Paul wrote that. David believed that promise before Paul wrote that. And Jesus knew that before Paul wrote it because he was God. Because he tells you salvation belongs to God. He is the one to trust in trouble. He has proved it over and over. We too must believe and put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because he has proved faithful over and over again and salvation comes from him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that in your word you show people for who they are. They show, you show people in distress. And Lord, we pray that as trials come into our lives and as we see a world that seems to be spiraling out of control, that we would put our trust in you. And that we would take these keys that David has given to us and that we would resist the enemy's strategy to doubt. That we would recall your character, that we would rest in your peace and we would rejoice in the victory that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because no matter what happens to us here, we are victors and and we will be in the kingdom of God. Heavenly Father, help us to trust you and to recognize that nothing that comes into our life is without your blessing and that all things ultimately work out for our good and your glory, I pray in your name. Amen.